Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Stephen Marsh. Stephen, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Stephen Marsh. I'm a Canadian writer, um, and my latest iteration is I'm the author of On Writing and Failure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. So we're going to be talking about your new book, which I think by the time this goes up, we'll have just published. It's um, out. Okay, it's out now. Yeah. Available wherever fine books are purchased. Exactly. Yeah. On Writing and Failure, and the subtitle is Or on the Peculiar Perseverance Required to Endure the Life of a Writer. And yeah. the book is part of the Field Notes series, uh, which is put out by the Canadian publisher Biblioasis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, that's right. It's it's an enjoyable book, although parts are dark and depressing, but you keep <laughs> you keep a good tone throughout where you're discussing the various frustrations and indignities that a writer, uh, most writers or all writers perhaps, <laughs> encounter. Um, it's somewhere between a long essay and a short book or a pamphlet or... Mm. 20,000 words. <laughs> yeah. 20,000 words. Love that length. If I could write that length my like for the rest of my life, like one book a year, I would. It's a perfect length. No one publishes it, but it's a perfect length to write and to read. Okay, so how did this come together? Did you pitch it? Did they say failure? We need to get Stephen Marsh on the line. How did this come together? Yeah, they said, who knows most about failure? I think it's Stephen. Like, Stephen is most familiar with failure. No, I mean, Dan called me up and he said, um, we're doing this series. Do you want to write a book in it? And I said, yeah, I want to. And I, I've sort of kept my whole life, like, not quite a commonplace book, but like a collection of anecdotes about the worst things that happen to writers or like bad scenarios writers found themselves in <laughs> just because I found it, I found it very comforting. Um, and I found it, uh, consoling and much more so than, you know, stories of writers struggling and succeeding or all the kind of nonsense, uh, you know, pep talk, you know, writer pep talks that people give writers all the time. I found these stories of like how bad it can get to be actually much more consoling. And so I basically put them together in a book and in, into a book-length essay. Okay, so what do you see as the connection between writing and failure? Well, I think there, there's like, writing is actually imbued with failure on a huge number of levels. So like, first of all, there's like the, the career failure, um, which is, you know, absolutely part of the process of doing this. And which, uh, which you know, everyone deals with and which no one really escapes, even the most successful writers, uh, you are constantly being rejected. Um, and that's just part of the process of doing this. The other thing is that I really have started to realize that, um, as I wrote the book, that the act of writing itself is mostly you rejecting your own work, right? Like it's mostly <laughs> about, you know, you write something and then you hate it and then you, you throw it away. And then what you don't throw away is in effect what you keep, right? And, but you're certainly throwing away the vast majority of the things that you write. And so that there's this process of rejection that's actually involved in the act of writing itself. And then I think there's the inherent failure in trying to communicate inner privacies to other inner privacies through language, which is you know, fundamentally impossible, but also actual. And so, 
like to me failure is like like obviously these are a lot of stories about like you know james joyce couldn't get a job at a, an italian technical college teaching english you know like that's that's definitely a something that happened to him um but really it's more about how failure is kind of inherent to this process that you're you're absolutely never going to escape it in any way and so you you probably shouldn't even try you should probably just learn to fail with grace <laughs> um do you think failure is more inherent in writing than in other creative arts well i think there's failure in all creative arts right uh, because you need to get lucky in all of these arts like acting i think is particularly brutal uh where you know your 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 skill as an actor is more or less irrelevant right to what is going to happen to you in your career um and everybody knows it and it's it's uh you know it's one of those things where uh you have to accept that going into it but on the other hand i think for acting you sort of can get to the point where you are a success and writing i think the failure just kind of goes on forever there's always uh, there's always something more to there's always a point that you haven't reached and there's always um, a, a feeling of being unrecognized like on some fundamental level i mean it was one of those things where i have known some very very successful writers indeed and they don't feel that at all they don't feel a success at all i mean and and, and this was just something that i i really noticed was which was shocking to me which is like well how can you how can you feel this way when, you know, you've been on the cover of Time magazine or whatever? Uh, but I, I don't I, I genuinely think they don't escape. I don't think anyone does. Yeah, you you relay an anecdote about Jonathan Franzen, um, who. Well, that's just reported like that. I mean, that's not something that I learned. That was just him describing it to Terry Gross, where he's like, I thought I could hand sell a couple copies of Freedom. Like, we well, already sold 1.6 million copies of your last book. I mean, you know, like, it's not like, it's not like you're out there hustling copies on the street. Like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? But, but he feels that way. And, you know, and he is no, he is no exception. He is absolutely not an exception. Like, that is, that is not at all how, I, I mean, I've known people who, I mean, maybe not as successful as him, but certainly massively successful feel exactly the same way. So wh which way does the causation go? Do you think... The type of person who, you know, so to continue being a writer as you write, you're, it's like banging against a locked door or something over and over again, and you might yeah. break through, but you might not. So the, the only people who sort of ascend to, you know, a level of like cultural influence necessarily have been banging for a long time. Is it that the process, do you think the process makes one like that? Well, or, you know, is there a personality type that can deal with this? Well, um, personality type that can deal with it is someone who doesn't really care. Um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, not particularly, um, good for writers. You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, like it, it's definitely de there, obviously there are mental health challenges, uh, to any writing career. I think mental health actually, when you look at the statistics, you have to think about, um, when, if you're going to write, you have to think about your mental health the way that people who work in lumber yards think about losing their fingers, right? It's something that you, like, it is a risk. You need to think about it, right? You need to, you, you need to actually consider it when you're dealing with it. But, you know, whether miserable people are drawn to writing or whether writing makes people miserable, <laughs> almost impossible to tell. 
really. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think, you know, I, your point where it's just like, well, what kind of leads to the success of these people? Well, I'm not sure in writing you ever know that you're a success, you know, or that you're ever successful for the reasons that you want to be or that you ever achieve the kind of recognition that you feel you deserve. Right. So, I, you know, I don't think I, I kind of debate the premise of your question, if you will. OK. And so a lot of the book you're talking, you're giving like sort of capsule biographies of famous writers, um, many of whom experienced failure or, you know, extreme distress or literal torture, uh, like Machiavelli yeah. was literally tortured um, yeah. in his life. And then there's also that, you know, someone like Melville was famously was like a, a failure at the end of his life and no one bought Moby Dick. And then yeah. you mentioned someone I'd never heard of before, Fitz Green Halleck, who oh, I yeah. guess was a p- quite prominent 19th century poet of his age, but is now- He has a so- statue in Central Park. He has a statue <laughs> in Central Park. Like he has a, Ed, Ed Graham Post said he was, the, he was the poet of his age, right? And I'm going to tell you, he's actually a very decent poet. Like he's definitely worth checking out. I mean, you know, like in the mid 19th century, definitely he was way bigger than Walt Whitman. Hmm. Right. And, and, you know, now he's, there's, there's fashion in eternity as in all things. Right. And I, I don't think anyone really escapes the, 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 just the brutality of fashion. Like it's just, it, it just is one of those things. Like the market needed him for a while and then it didn't need him anymore. And that, and that's really all that there is to it. Right. Who comes to mind as a, who we judge today as a successful writer who had a more or less happy life are there because there's plenty of examples of people who had very unhappy lives and as you mentioned a lot of um famous writers committed suicide are there ones yeah. where you say this was <laughs> this guy seemed happy most of the time i mean i what you mentioned updike at one point or a quote from updike and, and he sort of came to mind would you agree I, with that or i don't ones? I don't know. I mean, I don't really know who's happy and who's not. I mean, we're living in the social media age, right? It all seems like a big fraud to me anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like you, you, you never know who's happy. I admit it, really. But, like, it's, but that doesn't, um, I don't know. I mean, and that also doesn't mean, I, like, I think there, I've certainly met many writers who are deeply self-satisfied right? They're not the good ones, incidentally, right? Like they're not the, the the ones, like you meet people who think that they are it, right? They are, they are the, and, and have done nothing. I mean, that was the sort of lesson from the Hemingway Fitzgerald part of the book where it's like, you know, Fitzgerald really thought he was a failure, even when he'd written multiple best-selling books. Hemingway had written nothing, but was absolutely convinced of his success. Right. So it's, you know, it's uh, like it's not this not super connected to reality, but happiness never is, is it? I mean, it's not, like it's never the people. I mean, it's the obvious example, but Anthony Bourdain killing himself. Right. Like who who had the he had the best job in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I think there's I think you really do. You never know. And external gauges are really a tremendously poor way to tell where someone is at in the state of their life. Right. Do you think Fitz Green Halleck was happier than Walt Whitman? I mean, is there any way to know? Did he write a memoir? I don't know. Um, you know, I have no idea of who Fitz Green Halleck was as a person. Walt Whitman seemed pretty happy, you know, living yes. in New York, sleeping around. I mean, like, well, I, you know, I, I just I, looked at 
Fitzgreen Halleck's um, Wikipedia page because I never heard of him before. And he, well, someone called him the American Byron, um, but he's of interest. Oh, melancholy. Well, he's of interest, but also I think he was sort of like he slept around as well. And he's apparently of interest today mainly as sort of a another early gay writer or possibly gay writer. And that's oh, interesting. one of the few ways anyone studies him. Um, but yeah, so who knows? Um, okay. So, th- so you know, there's a, a kind of book that's like letters to a young ex or something. Um, and this is not, this is not that book. I mean, is this, but is this book like a cautionary tale for someone who's like, I want to be a writer someday. And you hand them this book and you know, they, <laughs> well, they, they decide to pursue seems- something else in life. The kid writers that I know are fully aware of the problem. Right? Like they're not like it's not like it's like yeah, writing's tough. You don't, you don't need to tell that to a twenty four year. Like they already know. Like mm-hmm. they like they fully know it. I think the information that I have to communicate that might be useful is that that feeling never goes away, and that it, it, you're not going to reach a point where you're like, oh, I've I've graduated from that stuff, right? Like that's, that's the, I, I, I think that's, um, that's one of the purposes of this book is to explain that it, it just, that the struggle here, the perseverance required is not like a dues that you pay and then it's over. Like, it, in fact, it, it's something that just goes on and on until, un, until I don't know, until you're released from writing, really. A book that your book reminded me a bit of, thematically at least, is, um, William DeResowitz's The Death of the Artist, um, which came out a few years ago, and I had him on this podcast actually. Right. And he t- he's Very looking, guy. yeah, he's looking at the economic changes of the internet age and how that has made it much harder to make a living in the, in the arts yeah. at all. And he focuses on, um, I don't actually know if I think he skips writing because that's so that was like the obvious one to him. But he talks about other. You know, other arts where it's become much harder to have any sort of, you know, like middle class lifestyle in the yeah. arts. Yeah. How do you see that interacting with it? Just the oh, change, I think it's definitely true. The changes of the past 25 years or so. Well, I mean, we're all living in institutions in radical decline. Um, like, that, I think that much is very clear. Like, not just publishing, but media, but also academia, which is in, you know, free fall. Um, like humanistic education is in free fall. Like, I, I mean, I think I take those points all very well. I, I will say that I think there was a period after the Second World War where there was a kind of explosion of writing and there were these explosion of these institutions. And it was sort of not necessarily easy because I don't think it's easy, but you know, there were jobs like, you know, you could get an, there were, I remember a world where there were like middle class playwrights who like, never wrote hits but but somehow made a living living in new mm-hmm. york like i rem- i i met them um like <laughs> did they that, seem happy <laughs> oh they seemed so miserable although mm-hmm. they had it all mm-hmm. right like yeah you know like but but the um i think we're now returning to more of the historical norm right we're like we're returning to the sort of the pre-war period of this stuff and um and and, and you know definitely not in a pleasant way Right, like this is not this is not a happy eventuality. Um, but on the other hand, it, it is. It, we are, you know, it, it it kind of is. This is the way it has always been. So one of the, I mean, there's the economic changes that uh, the internet has brought. But 
there's also the the way the internet has removed the gatekeepers that once controlled access to like the printing, the printing press literally or something. So if you were a no-name yeah. person 40 years ago and you wanted to get your ideas out there, you either stood on the street corner with a loudspeaker or you had to convince someone of your worthiness. I mean, someone with some level of power, like an editor or a radio producer or something like that. Um, so that has yeah. re really been dismantled and any person or kook or grifter can now start putting stuff out online and the algorithm and other strange things bring them to attention. So so probably there's there must be tons, some multiple of more people are like actively writing, you know, for public consumption versus 30 years ago. Um, I don't think so at all. I, really? I, I seriously, well, it's a question of like- Well, what did I, it depends what you define as writing, I guess, but if you're, if writing yeah, exactly. a tweet is writing. Tweet is writing, but you know, people wrote diaries before, right? Like, like if you're talking about professional writers, like people who do it for a living to for other people. Um, and, and when you say that gatekeepers have been disrupted, like, no, they've just been changed. Like, as you said, the gatekeeper is no longer some guy in an office, it's an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, like I will not, I, I, I do not believe for a moment, and nor should you, that that is less of a boss, right? That, that like, in, in fact, it's, it's just, as, it's, it's worse. It's way worse, right? Um, like, no, no, no. I mean, the, the idea that we're living in this free, where anyone can get active, like, no, anyone is allowed to do nothing. Like you're, anyone is allowed to put their diary online, but that is not the same thing as have an audience or that's still very much controlled by, by institutional, frankly, corporate forces. And I, you know, I just don't think that will ever change. I mean, I just don't like if for that to change will require basically a reformulation of society. Okay. Well, here's what I push back somewhat. I mean, I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter and if you are getting any actual writing done, it's not probably... one single work, not one single work of any literary importance has emerged from the entirety of Twitter. Okay. I, I like there is not one single thing on Twitter that is even, even as valuable as a random Alice Monroe story. <laughs> okay. Like it is, it is You're probably no right about that, but there's various people who are strange and 30 years ago, they would not have brought their quote-unquote work or writing to the public. So one is this guy, Cat Turd 2, who started as a Trump reply guy, a huge Trump mega fan. And then for some reason, Elon Musk, like, interacts with him a lot. And so so this guy, and there was a profile of who he really is. He's basically like a washed-up Florida, like, rock musician and some, like, you know, bar band sort of thing. So he is now, I assume, making some sort of living like because of Twitter, because of print on demand, you know, maybe Cat Turtle will be the Republican vice presidential candidate as, you know, <laughs> things are going. But, you know, this is so this is total like crap, garbage. The things he's writing are not going to stand the test of time. But maybe he's like the MAGA, you know, Fitzgreen Halleck of of our current age. And, and you know, 30 years one, ago, no, no one, one on Twitter has produced anything as good as Fitzgreen Halleck <laughs> on Twitter. Not one single person. But also, you but know, maybe he's making a living. Like it, it's this. it's the refuge of these. It's the refuge of these like outsiders and like you know that's like Twitter is the is the refuge of people who follow an algorithm. Like like it is not the refuge of anything remotely approaching. Um, like if you want outsiders, go to New York in 1970 and go to CBGB. 
where there was like plenty of freaks on display who were making like random, totally random art and finding audiences for it. Like Twitter is for followers. Like that is literally what you are there to do. You are literally a follower and a user. So it is, yeah, like the, the, the idea that this is some kind of democratic flourishing of arts is um, like, it, it just does not jive with reality. Like it's, it's a, just a corporation that it, it, that exploits um, some addictive uses of language to <laughs> gather attention. Like it, it has no, it has no other value. Than okay. Now I am not a fan of Twitter and I've been rooting for Elon Musk to drive it into the ground for the sake of humanity. So well, I'm, a, I'm a Twitter addict. Like I use it all the time. <laughs> okay. But well, it, like, it, it, yeah, it's, but, but you know, I've used this is, metaphor before. It's like the alcoholic would be, you know, the neighborhood alcoholic would benefit if the bar got bulldozed. Um, and then he, yes, maybe, like, exactly. turn his life around. But I'm still going to the bar. Yeah. Um, so that's but how I, sort I think of it's more, let's, let's not pretend that alcohol is actually a tonic, right? Like, let's not pretend that alcohol is actually good for us. Like I may drink it, but like, let's not pretend that it's like, you know, the cure, like if that's not what right. it is. No, it, it's all, it's ultimately, uh, you know, excess of alcohol ex and pretty much any amount of, you know, social media is, is ultimately bad. Okay. But where, you know, CBGB, like there's now a target where CBGB is. So where, so where are the freaks yes, of, of today? Like, accumulating like maybe they're on like weirdo websites that we've never even heard of or maybe they're just playing video games in the basement or something like the freaks they're are still out there somewhere doing incredibly disgusting shit i mean right. that's what that's like like they're they're on they're on sub sub forums of sub forums of reddit doing incredibly weird and awful things like yeah that's that's where they are on a, on a different area of this, how do you see the difference in the national cultures of Canada and America, and perhaps England also, in terms of success, failure, esteem? You know, talking about these things. Like, it seems Are like America's. Canadian? No, I'm I'm American, but it seems like America. You're American, is, right? Is a very very we we love success in America. That's why we elected yes. Donald Trump. Um, it seems like maybe Canada is closer to the you know with a closer connection to the UK is this more of like a performed humbleness or something whereas that doesn't yeah. fly as well in america well in you see the thing the beautiful thing about america the thing that is actually the best thing about, about it is that it's totally okay to be a success there and everyone <laughs> loves it and, it and and they want you to succeed i mean they want you to that's why everyone i mean i would not have a career without america right like like canada certainly wanted nothing to do with me still wants really very little to do with me and like it is it is a very i mean it's a very beautiful part of america that it, you're it's okay for people it's okay to want to be successful like i think that's great in canada you know it's funny there's an alice monroe short story collection that had to be renamed when they moved it to america and the, i forget what the american title was but the title in canada was who do you think you are <laughs> right and uh -huh. everyone in canada understood exactly what that meant who do you think you are that's that's the question that is um constantly whispered here it, very like very much a samey samey equality for everyone kind of society now that has some good parts right like a functioning education public education system a functioning healthcare system like reasonable laws about guns, et cetera. Like, but it, but it, you know, it, when you're trying to do exceptional things, 
like Canada will not love you for what makes you exceptional. It just won't, <laughs> right? It, 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 it will love you for what makes you normal, um, which is, you know, not really what writing is about. The Brits, I have a different theory about the Brits that, like, to me, they still have that, um, that cult of the amateur. Like, what they want is, like, to succeed, but just casually. Like, it, like, it's like, it's like not a big deal how successful they are. Like they've, they've done this thing, but it, you know, it's like, we just did it for fun. You know, that, that sort of attitude, it's like a cover for their own success. That's, that's been my experience. Although I, I, you know, I've never really worked in Britain. That's interesting. You mean sort of like toss, you know, like a clever person tossing something off and, but then it's a huge, a huge yeah, thing. I mean, and they're like, oh, that's When nothing. you look at the conservative government, like that's, it's these Eaton boys who are like, yeah, so I mean, I can like I'll I'll be prime minister if you would like. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it, it's a um it's an imperialist holdover, right? Like you're not supposed to try at anything. Everything is supposed to come to you very effortlessly, right? And and and, and graciously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's that's sort of my I I don't, I don't you know that's that's just sort of my experience with it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in America, I think the culture valorizes the striver or the oh yeah i love the provinces sort of sort of thing it is 100 percent the best thing i mean the other thing about americans that you just have to love is how they talk right (laughs) like they just talk frankly and openly about things and it's just like such a relief when you come from canada or the uk where they it just like they will not say what they mean they just will not like you can talk (laughs) to them for hours and they just will not tell you what they mean Right. And if you go to America, it's like, oh, they just like, you know, I've gone into meetings in Canada where I've come, I've realized like two days later, oh, they didn't want me. They rejected me. Like, but, but I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time. Right. <laughs> and like, and it's like, and it makes life so much harder. It makes life so much harder. Um, okay. That's, that's very funny. Sharing a little of my nationalist pathologies here with you. <laughs> uh, but that, that's all right. So how does uh, Canadian writers who are successes either in Canada or America or both, how does, how are they viewed nationally? Like, um, Monroe? Well, or... and, I mean, we, we had kind of like a golden age of writers in the post-war period. So Atwood, Monroe, Ondaatje, um, uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, Mordecai Richler, you know, et, et cetera. And then some of those, some of those, do you know who Mordecai Richler is? Would that be a name familiar with I, I, you? I know, I know the name, but I, I couldn't say anything about him. Was he a poet primarily? No, he was a novelist. Okay. And he was, he, he was, a, he was actually a really great comic novelist, but, um, but you know, like the, um, it, the only success that matters in Canada is the success in America. hundred percent. Hmm. They, they, they would be able barely even notice the success in Canada. <laughs> Interesting. Like Alison Monroe wrote for years for Saturday Night and major Canadian magazines, but she wrote for the New Yorker, therefore she matters. You know, I mean, like it's kind of it's kind of that simple. Interesting. Okay, let's maybe talk a little bit more about a darker topic, which which you mentioned before, which is writers who with mental illness and com- who commit suicide. And you you mm-hmm. write in particular about well, you, there's a lot to mention, but you write about David Foster Wallace. Um, yes, indeed. And and yeah, the I, and there's you know the stereotype of like the mad genius or something, or someone who is like miserable, a writer who was miserable their entire life, and then finally like succumb to it. And, and, but then you know, well, maybe a a counterpoint would be like Hemingway, who seemed like 
uh, you know, very over the larger than life and happy for most of his life and, and Ben killed himself. Um, yeah. How do you, yeah. Well, I mean, this is a large, well, large I mean, he, topic. Had a, he had some, he had some dark spells in there. I mean, mm-hmm. like he, he was a, he, he had braggadocio, but he definitely had, he had, he had depression. I mean, the thing is like, when you look at Foster Wallace in particular, I think what you, what you see is that, um, you know, he, he deliberately tried to avoid this mythology of the suicidal artist is valid because he, you know, because he suffered from real depression. So he knew that it was kind of nonsense, but, uh, at the same time, he, he, uh, like, and I, 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 the periods where he was at his most productive were for sure the periods where the, uh, Nardo was working, where the, where the meds were working. Um, so, you know, but the, the thing that you really learn from him is that, uh, the myth, the mythology kind of takes over anyway. It's not necessarily that, um, writers need to have these mental illnesses to write. It's that audiences want them in the grossest way, right? Like in the, in the, in a, in a really debased way, they, they want these, uh, they want suicide makes audiences feel like artists are for real. Right. And, and I think that's like, and that goes for, in his case, it wasn't just like the Virginia Woolf literary suicide type. It's the, it was the club 27 rock and roll suicide, um, which was, you know, which is just equally as horrible and, and equally as demeaning. Um, but he, you know, he tried to avoid it his whole life and he just, he just couldn't. Yes. You know, we know more about his particular, you know, the antidepressants he was taking and stuff like that, whereas that didn't exist yeah. for the period of most many other famous writers. Yeah. I mean, how do you, well, you know, he's, it's been 15 years, I think, I think it was 2008 when he, when he died, how, and, he, and he's, I guess the most prominent literary suicide. Uh, that's a dubious honor of, you know, the past 20 or 30 years. Um, no one else has yeah. come to mind. Um, how do you think, you know, the way the culture has come to view him, I mean, th- there's this weird uh, sort of like he's one of the toxic male writers, um, and pu- and you know, yeah. pu- puncturing the the myth of like that he was some saint or something. I think even Franzen wrote something along those lines, like don't call him Saint Dave or something. Yeah, how do you, you know, 15 years well, I mean, later, how do you, you know, look? I mean, I don't really wade into these waters very much, but like, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a PhD in Shakespeare. If you went through any of those writers and tried to judge their morality as the basis of, of their art, you would reject everyone, right? <laughs> I mean, they're like, like, like they're like, I, I just, I am not a person who believes that you judge artists on the basis of their moral standing. Right. Like that's like, to me, their, their artistic capacities are greater, or, you know, and, and if you do start throwing out writers because of their moral capacities, I mean, you got to sacrifice a lot. I mean, you got, you can't have Picasso, right? Like you can't, like he was a monster. Right. So like, I, I mean, like, I, I guess I'm just the wrong person to ask that question to, because I, like, I've never understood that good artists, good art is made by good people. I mean, that, that just seems to me like, there's just no evidence. I've, I see no connection between uh, the, uh, between a person's morality and their capacities as an artist, like none. Right. right. And, 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 and so um, I, I just, I, I find that, I don't know, just, I guess a little naive to me, really. Right. And I mean, you know, the term that I, I don't want to use of like cancellation, um, which I, you know, is complicated and stupid in a lot of ways. 
but like you know yeah. there's no there's no denying that like kevin spacey is is or was a great actor um and yeah or that um harvey weinstein was a great producer and knew how to you know True. take yeah. make a movie and make it a hit um but you know the the equivalent of Harvey Weinstein a hundred years ago, like those early studio heads did all sorts of horrible things and just, it was kept a secret. Um, so that, you know, it's, it's easier for these stories to come out now, which is a good thing, I think. So, uh, so a monster, you know, a criminal like Weinstein can't keep getting away with it, but then you do have to deal with, I think, you know, what do we, I mean, someone who lived a hundred years ago was like, yeah, he was a total asshole. He beat his wife or whatever, but the books are still good. The art is still good. You can say that. But then when it comes to contemporary figures, it's much more vexed, I think. And I don't think art justifies criminality at all. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that paintings that Picasso made justify his criminal behavior, even remotely. Like, and, and I mean, Kevin Spacey should be punished to the Met and like, and Weinstein, like, of course, they, these are criminal people. Like, I, I just think it's, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think there's a certain kind of like, reality here that um that we have to like if you go through the national gallery and throw out all the paintings by monsters like you won't have much left right like <laughs> like like the more d'arteur like all the the basis of all the arthurian legends we have uh, were made by men who committed rape and murder like like mallory and, and was convicted hmm. from and went to jail for it, right mm -hmm. like he doesn't get off of jail because he wrote more d'arteur Right. But at the same time, it doesn't invalidate that he wrote more tartare. I mm -hmm. like, I, I, I don't know. I, I find it, I guess I just find this, um, this, the, the approach we have to morality and art, um, to be quite weak. Like, I don't, um, like, I don't, I don't think it's going to last at all. I think it's a very temporary approach to how people think of art and how they think of artists and how they think of, um, what this process is. I mean, you know, I, I, as I said, it, like, I don't think art justifies anything. I mean, it, you know, I, 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 I think it, I, I think it absolutely doesn't, but at the same time, that doesn't, it, that doesn't invalidate the art either. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you, you can't really live that way. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes sense to me. It is some sort of, you know, emanation of technology changes and yeah, the, well, I don't think it's even that I, I think this has come back and forward law lo lots of times. Like there's been a there's been a return to morality and art. There was certainly one in the late 19th century. There was one in the 1920s. Um, <laughs> there was like it, it, it comes back like this idea that artists should be good people. Right. And then you get to other peri periods where art is supposed to be for bad people. Right. Like it's supposed <laughs> to be the, the work of scoundrels and people who are marginal and on the outside of society rather than um you know, em embodiments of its, of its values. Um, I just, you know, in my own experience, I've just never seen artists as embodiments of, uh, societal values. Right. Like you would never like, like the, 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 I just don't think that that's, that's the role that they play in this world. Right. Okay. We're maybe coming towards the end of our time. Is there anything else about the topic or the book you want to mention? No, buy it. It's a very interesting, um, you know, it, it's it's an attempt to be cosmopolitan in time and place and to show how these kind of situations re repeat themselves over time, right? And in different places as well. So it's, I mean, like, I, I'd like to think that it took a sort of broader view of this sort of thing. So a link will be in the show notes to where you can buy the book. 
And yeah, I enjoyed reading it. Um, I did want to, if we have just a l- maybe a little more time, at least mention, you wrote a piece sure. that just came out. The title is, it was in LitHub, on one of the most influential essays of the 21st century of snark and smarm. I thought this was quite interesting. We probably don't have time to get into it fully, but um, I would recommend it to people. I'll include a link to that as well. And yeah, and so you're looking at an essay that Tom Skoka, if that's how you pronounce his last name, wrote about a decade ago on smarm was his which is reacting to a yeah an essay from 10 years earlier on snark and yeah these were sort of two categories of like literary criticism but also looking at or some sort of a moral evaluation of public life in the like aughts and through the the 2010s yeah and it's a really interesting piece that i would i would recommend people check out yeah oh thank you well yeah i mean it was with lit hub and it's I mean, I Skoka's piece is one of those pieces that uh, I've been obsessed with. I, I mean, I have a great deal of admiration for it while hating it. And that's, <laughs> I mean, I think that's some of the really interesting work is is that way. I mean, it's incredibly well-articulated and well, well-made well essay. A classic, really. I, and yet I, and yet I hate it. So um, the, the, that kind of tension is produces some interesting effects, I think. Okay, that's that's interesting. I've had this gotten this obsession over the past couple of months about Gen Xers moving to the right uh, politically yeah. and in in the culture at the same time that Gen Xers are starting to finally take power, and obviously there there could be a connection between those two trends. But both of these were sort of like an early Gen X statement and then a later one, but it was it was very much for like from the outside, um, and or one was written in the Believer and one in gawker and gawker more yeah it was a very gen x uh, phenomenon and was was sort of like we know we're never going to have power um so we're gonna yes just like tear down Shit all over it you know the yeah. people who do were who were often boomers and and finally the boomers yeah. because of because of age are receding from the scene and now xers are becoming more powerful and there's xers on the Supreme Court, and elon musk owns twitter and he's an xer yeah and the way that a lot of people who would have called, and actually this guy cat turd too if you read this profile of him was sort of yeah. like you know he was like a rock guy in the 80s and 90s and probably did drugs and boozed a lot and now he's become like ultra mega guy anyway i think this is all interesting well i mean rock and rollers always become ultra right i mean look at you know like look at the sex pistols like look at look at the smiths right like they like oh know, yeah people yeah, who yeah. do rock and roll are, are inherently conservative <laughs> like all of their all of their rebellions are always a fraud Right, like because it's not like it's never like it's always it always seems rebellious, but really it's about the tax code, right? That's why that's why the Rolling Stones go to France to make Exile on Main Street so that they don't have to pay taxes. That's why you two, despite all their talk, they move to Amsterdam and they incorporate there so they don't have to pay Irish taxes. <laughs> and like rock and rollers are always a fraud, right? Like they they always turn out to be to be frauds. Um, but like, like they always turn, it all, it always turns out to be just pure narcissism in the end anyway. But I, you know, I, I mean, I think the, the, I mean, one of the things that in on Stark and Swarm is, is like, because of a certain technological route, the usual route of attacking your elders and then taking their place, which has li- literally been going on for hundreds of years, that kind of got cut off. I mean, you know, one of the things I noticed is that spy, the book of spy magazine, like the early years, you know, spy magazine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was published by Miramax and oh, really? Weinstein is thanked in the acknowledgements. Right. Hmm. And it's like, that's, that's how satire 
that's and that's how satire works, right? It's like satire was like attacking people, attacking people, but then Weinstein puts it out. Right. Right. Well, what, like, so like, Weinstein was an outsider at one point, and that you know, like the indie movie it was so. the, the movies that the big studios weren't making, and he like helped lead the you know revival of indie yeah. cinema. Um, yeah, but then I guess whatever the outsider becomes the insider and gains more power you know their perspective naturally changes yeah and thinking more about their tax rate maybe that yes other things absolutely yeah yeah okay so yeah I, I recommend this essay links to the things we uh discussed will be in the notes here okay so you are a twitter addict but you hate it so would you do you want people to follow yeah, you yeah. on twitter or are you hoping that the whole sure. thing sure they can do that well buy the book is what i'd like them to do but yeah they can follow me on twitter at stephen marsh Okay, and people can, can follow me on Twitter at A-R-Y-E-H-C-W. As long as it still exists, I honestly think it might really collapse over the next couple of months. It'll be really... dead by the time this goes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, in, in, inshallah. Um, okay, well, well, thank you, Stephen, for coming on the book again on writing and failure. And, you know, people can rate and review this episode if they uh, enjoyed the content and want other people to find it. Okay, so thanks to all the listeners out there, and we'll see you again next time.